Good morning, Disciples Church. Would you please remain standing as I read scripture? Uh, my name is Sandy Green, and we are reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remaining there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Sandy, for reading that for us. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for that. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors at Disciples Church, and we are so, so glad that you're here uh, with us today. And if you're not already turned there in your Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Well, this year at the end of uh, this summer, my family had an opportunity to get away for four or five days and to get up to, to Door County just before the school year began for one kind of last mini uh, fling before we got into the busyness uh, of the season. And so we enjoyed our time up there. I loved it. It was a beautiful time of year to go right at the end of the summer. And most of the tourism at that point has died down. And so everything was fairly accessible and easy to get into and all those sorts of things. But one of the things that we decided to do this year that was just a little bit different than something we'd done previously uh, was to go up to Newport State Park. Now, if you're familiar with Door County, Newport State Park is right at the tip 
of the peninsula. It's right at the very end of Wisconsin uh, as it kind of juts out into Lake Michigan. And so uh, as we were, as we were uh, at this park, the reason we had originally gone out there is because Newport, Newport State Park has the unique distinction of being one of 18 parks across the United States that are considered a dark sky zone. It's been designated by an organization, and the name of which I can't remember, but the whole reason this organization exists is to determine where there are these dark sky zones where people can go and see an uninterrupted or unpolluted view of the sky. And so we got out there right at dusk, right as the sun was setting, and we had hung out for a couple of hours. And what was amazing to see, because of where this place is located, which is right on the tip of the peninsula, pretty far away from any of the local cities up there, surrounded on all sides by Lake Michigan and behind a wood line, you get a unique perspective because there's no light pollution, there's nothing around, nothing that could break up your view of the sky. And so as we were there for about two hours, what we began to see is slowly little dots of light appear in the sky above us, and they grew and grew and grew until after about two hours, the sky was just littered with stars. Unlike anything I've seen in my life growing up in the city, I've never seen anything like that before. And, and you could just see as far around you as you were able to see, completely uninterrupted, and we had a good night for it, clear night, no clouds, none of those kinds of things. You could see all of these stars around you. And we were able to stay just late enough to begin to see the nebula, this kind of, uh, kind of cloud-looking thing made of space, gas, and dust. You could actually see it in the sky. If we'd have stayed longer, we would have been able to see the, the northern lights, but I had a five-year-old and a seven-year-old with me, and it was pretty cold that night, so we ended up jetting out before we had opportunity to see that thing. But just an amazing, beautiful picture, an incredible display of God's creation and the wonder of everything that he's, that he's made. It's unlike anything I'd seen before, and it has this unique effect of causing you to realize how small you are. It's similar to standing at the Grand Canyon or to flying over the ocean or to going into the mountains. You, you just get a perspective on how small you are as compared to everything else. And as I was reading this story this week, what occurred to me is that what was unique and different for me on that particular night would not have been unique or different for these men who come to be known as the wise men. These are educated, scholarly men who had studied the stars, had studied astronomy for the purpose uh, of astrology, for actually trying to interpret the meaning of things or predictive features based on the outcome of the stars. But imagine then how startling it must have been for those men who knew the heavens like the back of their hand to look up one night and see, see a star so unexpected so unique, so bright among the heavens that they knew by the revelation of God through the Holy Spirit and by Old Testament prophecy that this was the indicator of the birth of the Messiah. How incredible it must have been to be one of those men in that moment, to have this realization, to see something so unique, so distinct, and so different. And you may have noticed over the last couple of weeks as we've begun our series in Advent, we've been looking at this Christmas story, this incredibly familiar story to Western eyes, through some of its lesser-known characters who were actually there. And just to be clear, our intention in doing that is not to be cute or not to be different, but our goal is to, is to explore the narrative of Scripture, that we can get a fuller picture of just how incredible the arrival of Jesus Christ actually was. 
And so today we find ourselves back in the book of Matthew where we began with the genealogy uh, two weeks ago. Remember as we read this that because the audience of this book was primarily Jewish, nearly everything Matthew writes in this book connects to Old Testament prophecy and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And today's story is certainly no different. What's amazing and and very helpful about the way that Matthew writes is that he actually calls out the Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled in Jesus, and we have at least two examples of that in this text. But I want to begin here by looking at some of the unique characters to whom we're introduced in this story. Look at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So we're introduced first to these men, these men that are known as the wise men. They're known as the magi. And magi, that term, you'll recognize in it the root of the word magic or magician. That's a very intentional and purposeful use of the word here. These these magi were priests and sages. They were scholars and academics, but they also had a religious bent to their study. And the whole purpose of their occupation was to function as religious and policy advisors to kings. The whole reason that they were around the kingdom was to be these people who would advise the king based on their predictions of the future. So sometimes we read in the Bible and we come across these terms that to modern Western eyes are very unique and strange. We'll read about words like magicians or sorcerers. These were actual people who used divination and astrology and dream interpretation to determine how they ought to advise a king on the outcomes of battles or the conditions of the harvests or the wisdom of particular treaties, so on and so forth. And this is one of those ideas that pops up a lot throughout the Scripture. We find it particularly in the Old Testament with men like Daniel or Joseph. You'll remember that both of those men had particular instances in which they came across influential individuals who had had meaningful dreams, but those dreams could not be interpreted by the wise men, the sages, the magi of the day. And so God gave those two particular men wisdom and insight into the meaning of those dreams for the advancement of the glory of God. Well, these particular wise men served a king named Herod. Herod is based out of what is, or rather the the wise men rather, are based out of what is modern day Iran. And as they're looking up at the sky one evening, they notice this star. Given their profession, they took this star's appearance to be a sign of something very significant that was about to happen. And they were right. Because the Bible had predicted some 1,400 years earlier that a star would be the symbol of the birth of the Messiah. We find that prediction in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which says this, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The connection between the rise of this physical star and the the rulership of the Messiah were were indelibly connected in the book of Numbers some 1,400 years ago. And so here's what's interesting for us to think about as we read this text, because the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly how it was that these wise men knew that the star indicated the birth of a king. But given their profession and given what they did as an occupation, it's a fair guess that God had perhaps even communicated to them about the star in a dream. Now certainly that's, that's a bit of conjecture on our part, 
But we have to remember the times and the places in which these particular men live, because we in our context have a tendency to be fairly dismissive of the idea that that God could actually communicate people in dreams. But understand that God has created us to be a holistic being. We have intelligence, and we have emotions, and we have senses, and we have dreams, and He is perfectly capable and willing to use whatever means will be effective to communicate the truth and give witness to His presence. So even today, some some 2,000 years later, I've had opportunity, and perhaps you've heard testament of missionaries in foreign countries, particularly countries in the Middle East where dreams are still given significance, where people who have had virtually no exposure to the gospel and no exposure to the Bible give testament to the fact that Jesus Christ came to them in a dream. And in our Western perspective, we look at that as a very unusual thing, a very impractical thing, but Doesn't it make sense that in a culture that puts high value and esteem on a dream that God might even use that means to communicate to people? Well, it's conjecture, of course, but perhaps, perhaps that's what God used for these particular men. In the case of these wise men, he decided to use this very particular star, a very special star. And I want you to notice what the text says here because our theology is often influenced by our popular music and culture, and this is one of those areas where it's been influenced. I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It does not say that the star actually led them, that the star was moving across the sky. It says that they saw the star And in their perspective, it was positioned over Jerusalem, and so they had it that way. Further on in the story, it actually says that when they arrived in Bethlehem proper, the star led them to the particular place of Jesus' birth, that that by virtue of the positioning of the star, somehow in God's miraculous ability, he communicated to them the presence of the birth of the Messiah. Now, all sorts of theories have been posed as to what exactly this star was, and if you look back historically, it's interesting how people have speculated Because some people said that perhaps this was the appearance of Halley's Comet. Some have said this was a supernova. Some have said it was just a particular alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. But I think think we miss the point if we try to focus on the detail of that. There is a certain kind of person who has, in the words of John Piper, a mentality for the marginal. And I love that idea because we all know people like that. We may actually be people who are naturally wired that way. We want to focus on the details about which the Bible doesn't actually give us insight. But what we do know is that the wise men witnessing this occurrence determined to drop everything in this moment to go off in search of this new king. And that is actually the most fascinating piece to me of this entire story. Because here are these men, these pagan, Gentile magicians who regularly and purposefully interacted with spiritual forces, actual demonic forces, in service to a wicked king. And somehow, in God's providence, these are some of the first people to see the chosen one the Messiah born in Israel. It furthers the idea that God is not remotely impressed by our religious acumen or upbringing or exposure because what he is all about is his own glory. He is about the joy of his people. 
and he graciously uses those whom we would least expect to bring those things about. Well, as inspiring as the wise men's response was, Herod's reaction couldn't have been more different. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, Herod is a unique man in history, but if you look through the course of the Bible, you'll realize that there were several different people, all with the name Herod. This is a particular family who were in charge of various provincial governments throughout the Middle East, and this particular Herod had been made the the king of this provincial government at the age of 15, incredibly young. And he comes into power because of the line of his family. He was a man of Jewish heritage, at least partial Jewish heritage, but he had an allegiance to Rome, and that put him in a unique perspective to be useful to the Roman government. And so the Roman government on their own had actually declared him to be the king of the Jews, even though he had no right to that claim. And this particular Herod, like many of his family, was insecure and jealous. He was a violent man. And the historian Josephus goes into great detail about the way that he executed his violence on his political rivals and on those that were around him. He had spent his life hunting down and killing those who could be a political threat to him. He had hunted down and killed enemies of his. He had even hunted down and killed members of his own family who he felt might be a threat to his rule. He wanted to do whatever he could to ensure that his power remained intact. So when he hears the news that some of his magi, his most trusted advisors, these people who were in touch with spiritual forces and to this point in his life had given him good recommendations regarding how it was he was to rule the kingdom, when he heard that these men were on their way to find a new king who had been born, this king of the Jews, immediately he feels threatened. Because who is this person who could possibly have been born who dares to take the title that belongs to him? Who is this person who could could dare to exist, who demands such attention and devotion from his trusted advisors? And so when he hears that this baby has been born, immediately it sends him into a murderous rage. And as you look at this man's life within the course of history, it is no surprise then, the Bible goes out of the way to say that Jerusalem was troubled along with him. That's a phrase that as we read this text jumps right past our notice, but did it ever strike you as odd that all Jerusalem with him was bothered by the announcement of this king? Well, why in the world would that be? Because they knew what this Herod was capable of. According to the historian Josephus, Herod, in the waning days of his life, as he was approaching death, he had had contracted illnesses and diseases and was now suffering the effects of those illnesses. At the end of his life, knowing that his death was imminent, he sent out his guards to imprison people from within the community, leaders and civilians who who were beloved among the people, and he had them all arrested and brought into his prison. And the reason that he did that is so that on the very day that he died, he could have all of those prisoners executed so that he could guarantee that tears would flow on the day of his death, even if they weren't flowing for him. By any human standard, this man is a wicked, vile, 
and violent person. So Herod hears this news. He's terrified at the prospect that there could be a threat to his reign coming out of Israel. So he calls together the chief priests and scribes, verse 4, the second half there. It says, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And remember that word Christ talks about anointed one. This is a reference to the Messiah, the one who's to be born to relieve and release the people from the bonds of their sin and the bonds of of their torment, and and their answer was this in verse 5, he is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And the scripture that the chief priests and scribes quote here comes from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'll read it for you. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, I want to point out something to you here that I think is easy to miss. And if I'm honest with you, as I started to work my way through this text, it was something that I read right past. But I want you to notice who these people are and what their reaction is. Because the focus of our conversation this morning, I think rightly, is going to be on the wise men and the, and the reaction of Herod. But do you notice that these are Jewish religious leaders? These are people who are well acquainted with the law, and they're so well acquainted with the Old Testament writings that when they are asked by Herod where this Messiah is to be born, they are able to pinpoint the exact prophetic word that referenced the birth of the coming Messiah. But do you notice their reaction? We get nothing from them. They're not excited, they're not elated. They don't stand there in hushed wonder at the arrival of the Messiah. They don't pack up their gear to go along with the wise men. They don't declare the goodness of God in delivering the one who is going to deliver the people of Israel. We hear nothing from these supposed religious wise leaders. These ones who are in the position to declare the good news of the coming Messiah to the ruler of the day. They were in the room with him. And we get nothing. These men who are supposed to have insight and wisdom and love for God don't say another thing about it. And what we find in that description is illustrative of what the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, which is this The devil baits his hook with religion. These men, for all of their knowledge and all of their academic upbringing and all of their acumen, these men were totally content with having respectable positions and the ear of the king. They were totally content with comfortable lifestyles. And they could not be bothered to pay attention to the fact that a star had miraculously appeared over Bethlehem in fulfillment of a 1,500-year-old prophecy. This is the exact attitude that Jesus himself speaks to in John chapter 4, verse 23, where he says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Listen to this phrase. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit 
And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is seeking for people to worship Him. And we hear the story of the wise men, we hear the story that we know so well, or we hear the story of the shepherds, and immediately our mind goes to their character and their valor and their bravery in pursuing, worshiping the Christ. But do you understand that it is the Father who first pursues them? That the Father is seeking out worshipers. And yet these particular men, the chief priests and the scribes, those who knew the Bible well, upon hearing of the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of the prophecy, could not be bothered to stop what they're doing to worship, even though God wanted nothing more for them than that. And I wonder how often, before we begin judging them too harshly, I wonder how often we, like them, are satisfied satisfied with religious observance at the expense of worshiping in the presence of the Messiah. And how often have we participated in our modern version of burnt offerings and sacrifices where we show up at church faithfully and we sing and we stand and we pray and we bow our heads and we do all of the right things at all of the right times. But do we do it from a heart of worship, realizing we are in the presence of the Messiah? Or do we do it out of an empty and vapid religious observation? What God is after is your true presence in worship. Well, what Herod might have presumed to just be superstition to this point had now just been verified by the religious experts, and that certainly doesn't do anything to improve his mood. And so in verses 3 through 7, we find him hatching this scheme. He calls the wise men in and he says, look, when you find this new king, I I want you to come back and tell me where he is because I want to worship him as well. I want to worship the true king of Israel. But of course we know that his actual plan was to come and murder the infant Jesus. The wise men leave this place having listened to his instruction. They go to find Jesus with the absolute intention of coming back and communicating where he is. They had all the intention in the world of obeying their governmental authority, but something even more miraculous in my opinion than the star takes place next. Verse 9. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So imagine the scene that they walk in on. After traversing all of this terrain and going through a difficult journey and leaving a homeland that they loved, they arrive at this place, they enter into the city, they come to the exact house where Mary and Jesus are, they arrive at the scene, they find them together, and it says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And if you were going to try to interpret that in a modern way, you would say they were deliriously happy in their happiness. In this moment, something shifts for them. 
They thought they were coming to just observe and recognize the national king of Israel. But imagine the scene that they walk in on. There are no parades and there's no courts. There's no servants or slaves. There's no feast or celebration. They walk into this humble home and they find this young woman from an unimportant family with her infant son. And the response, according to this text, is that they fell down and worshipped. The Holy Spirit opens their eyes. He gives them faith to believe. And they experience powerfully what the priests missed altogether. These pagan, Gentile sorcerers are converted to Christianity. And how do they respond? They worship. They give extravagant gifts worth tremendous amounts of money. Why? Because they found something infinitely more valuable. Verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, two things are happening here. One, God is communicating to Joseph through an angel on how he can protect his family. God knew what was coming, and he had a plan to protect Jesus. This was not Jesus' moment to die. But in doing so, he also fulfilled another prophecy given in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now here's what's fascinating about that. If you go back and read the context of Hosea chapter 10 through, 10 through 11, what you discover is that this prophecy is actually given about national Israel. And certainly it was a reference to the fact that God had brought his children out of the nation of Egypt, that he had he, he had delivered them from slavery and from the, from the mistreatment of the Pharaoh. But here in this moment, Jesus accomplished what national Israel failed to do. Because after all of their deliverance and after all of God's providence and after all of God's salvation and provision for them, national Israel continued to turn away from God. They continued to disobey. They continued to fail. They continued to miss the point. But here, Jesus does exactly what national Israel failed to do. To borrow the template from Tim Keller, Jesus is the true and better Israel who perfectly obeyed the law of God and brought final deliverance to his blood-bought people. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And this is one of the most depressing stories that we read in the New Testament. This is Herod's last desperate attempt to destroy Jesus. 
So he gives his command that all boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding region under the age of two are to be killed. Now we know that Bethlehem and the surrounding region was a very uh, very small region. It wasn't well populated. It was maybe a thousand people at most. But scholars estimate that despite that, there was probably somewhere between 12 and 15 boys under the age of two in this region. And imagine being the family and the friends and the neighbors in a small, friendly community. And all of a sudden, all the joy and laughter of a toddler and all the cries of the infants ceases. And in doing so, another prophecy is fulfilled. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This prophecy comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, and it mentions Rachel, which is interesting, but Rachel is pictured often as the mother of Israel. She has a significant role certainly in in Israel's history, but she has this this role or this picture as being essentially the spiritual mother of the nation. And here she's pictured weeping at the loss of these children. So where does all of this leave us? I think it leaves us asking this question. Which character in this story best portrays our approach to the Messiah? Herod wanted power and authority and kingship and he ended his life with nothing. He couldn't even find people who were genuinely sorrowful and mourning his loss. And the reason he ended his life that way is because he viewed Jesus as a threat. A threat to his position, a threat to his claim, And so I wonder if there might be some here who see Jesus as a threat to the kingship of your own life. Or perhaps there's a wrestle with whether or not to allow Jesus to take his rightful place in your life. Because inherently it means that you have to step off the throne. It might be a threat to your position or your comfort or your standing or your lifestyle. Do we respond like the priests and the scribes who are simply satisfied with their position? They liked the influence that they had. They liked the adoration they received. They liked the company that they got to keep. And you know what? That's all they ever got. These men who knew the Bible intimately died having missed the Messiah altogether. They died without seeing or knowing the Messiah that they claimed to desire so desperately. And so for some, maybe for you, Jesus is just a symbol. We may have moved on from Old Testament tropes, but perhaps you've just exchanged them for New Testament tropes. Giving verbal acknowledgement and mental assent to the idea of who Jesus is and his position as the Messiah and all of those things that we know are right to say, but refusing to recognize him for who he is in our lives. 
viewing him instead as a means to a religious end and a respectable life. A moral example. A means by which to raise good, disciplined kids. But to worship him, but to worship him in a way where he becomes so important might lead to inconvenience or sacrifice. So Jesus just becomes simply a nice idea, but one who is ultimately unnecessary or unimpressive or unworthy of your devotion. But the prayer and the hope, brothers and sisters, is that we all have or will respond like the wise men. These wise men had everything from a human perspective. They had wealth, they had the trust of the king, they had positions of power and lives of luxury. But when they found Jesus, they gave it all up. They gave away not only the gifts that they had brought with them, the gold and frankincense and myrrh, but they also gave away their positions. They gave away their homeland. They gave away the relationships that they had held because they could never go back to those things. And it was worth that sacrifice to them because this child, this infant king, was going to grow up and give himself in order to reconcile them, the lost, to God. Much has been made historically, and rightly, sh- rightly so, of the gifts that these men gave to the king, particularly the fact that they gave him myrrh. Myrrh is interesting historically because its typical use was to anoint the body of the dead. And so the infant Jesus is given this gift that would be later applied to his body when he was pulled down from the cross. What was it that made the wise men so wise? They were called wise men when they had all the acclaim of the world, but what made them wise in the sight of God was the recognition that Jesus was, in fact, the true king. That in the presence of the true king, they dropped everything, their power and their positions and their possessions, and they recognized that they needed a savior and came to him just as they were. They didn't clean up their lives. They didn't denounce their false gods. They didn't give up all of their luxury. When they came and saw him, in the moment when the Holy Spirit regenerated their heart, in that moment where they experienced the love of God and the presence of God, everything else faded and dropped. And do you understand, brother and sister, that Jesus expects the very same from us? that we cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot fix the areas that are broken. And he is not asking us to do so before coming to him. But he receives us just as we are. So brother and sister, see him as the true king, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, God with us, the savior of his people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truths that we find in this word. And God, we realize that our temptation 
as we talk about the wise men is to think about them in the context of the nativity scenes and the songs that we sing and, and all of those things that to us have become cute or sentimental. But God, help us to recognize that these were actual people who gave up incredible things for the purpose of what was most valuable to them. That in your goodness, you called them, not because they were worthy, not because they were living the right way, not because they were worshiping the right way or knew the right things, but that in the moment when they were actively serving the enemy of God, you called them to yourself. And so, God, to the extent that we wrestle with who you are and to the extent that we wrestle with who the baby in the manger was, would you help us not to respond as Herod did, to be fearful and fretful, to worry about what it will cost to follow? Would you help us not to respond as the chief priests and scribes did, knowing that you exist and knowing who you claim to be, but not recognizing or seeing value in it, but help us to respond in a way where we recognize that because of your grace and your goodness, we are able to come in all of our brokenness and in all of our mess and receive in your presence forgiveness, extend worship, and to encounter the blessings of what it is to be with the Messiah. God, we thank you that you're here with us today. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that the Spirit does this work in us that only you can do. And we pray, God, that we would make much of you in our lives today. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.